Good morning. Pray that you had a wonderful Christmas with family and friends. Uh, you know, this Christmas was really unique. If you don't believe me, step outside um, because it's about 80. But for many people, this Christmas was very unique all across the South and the Southeast in that tornadoes and storms raged all throughout Christmas. In Dallas alone, there were over 8, 10 deaths. There was flooding in my grandmother's hometown in Tennessee. The post office was ripped off of its foundation by a tornado that went through that town. The advent of Christ, for many, has become overshadowed by the reality of these storms that have raged in their lives and ripped away roofs and possessions and perhaps even loved ones. And this morning, even though we may not have tornadoes raging in our lives, there are no flood waters rising physically around us. There are storms bearing in on us, nonetheless, that are making dimmer the beauty and the glory of Christ breaking in to creation in the Advent. This morning, I do not know what is weighing on you. I do not know what storms you are facing, what is weighing heavy on your heart, but I do know this, that the advent of Christ has happened. That reality cannot be challenged. Christ was born. And the power of that truth cannot be overcome by any storm that may be raging in our hearts and lives this morning. You see, I believe this morning that as we explore the depths of one of the most precious chapters in all of the scriptures, Romans 8, that we will find there the significance of the advent and the implications that it has for our lives today, even in the midst of great and trying storms. So now I want us to pray, and I plead that you would pray for me and with me, that God would break each of our hearts for being underwhelmed by his glory and overwhelmed by the fears and anxieties and worries of our life. Let's pray. God, it is very easy for us to sing and to say with our mouths that we desire for you to be our everything, our delight. God, it is quite another to face adversity in this life and to hold on to that song as still true. 
So God, my prayer this morning is that in the power of your spirit, you would preach a better word than the one that I have written. That you would open our eyes to the beauty of the reality that the advent has happened, that light has broken into darkness and the darkness will never overcome it. And as we see in Romans 8, there is nothing that can separate us from you. So God, I pray that you would shatter hearts that are hardened, that you would break us of the sin that so easily wraps itself around us and ensnares us, and that you would set us free today to rest in the truth of your word and of Romans 8. God, meet with us, I plead. Amen. So we're in Romans 8 this morning. Um, If you are turning through your Bible still, that's going to be after Acts, before Paul's letters to the Corinthians and the New Testament. You're looking for the big number 8. And we're going to start at the small number 31. So Romans 8, starting in verse 31. Let's look at the text together. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure... I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You may have heard this passage before. But I pray this morning that we see something fresh happening in what has happened in the advent of Jesus. You see, Paul here in this text articulates perhaps one of the most precious truths in all of the scriptures. That God sent his son to secure for you and for me all of the promises that he has outlined in the totality of the scriptures. Today, as we study Romans 8, I want us to see from the text that if God has already done the hardest thing in sending his son, then there are two realities that are true because of the advent. First, we have in Christ an unshakably secure salvation. And secondly, we can face suffering with strength and satisfaction in God and his promises to us. Because they are sure. 
So let's begin. In verse 31, Paul states, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This may seem kind of odd because this morning we're coming in on kind of the tail end of what's going on in Romans 8. But suffice it to say that as Paul has been writing this letter, he has been outlining promise after promise after promise of God to God's people. And as we reach verse 31, suffice it to say that Paul is so blown away by the sheer immensity of the truth that has been outlined to this point that he is almost speechless as he pens the close of chapter 8. Paul writes, what shall we say? What else is there to talk about? What other marvelous truth can I speak to you that I haven't already outlined in Romans 8? And it's at this point that he comes to the second part of his statement in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? This reaches all the way back through Romans 8, even looking back to verse 28. Christian, all things work together for your good. God sees to it because he foreknew you. He predestined you to glory with Christ. He called you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He justified you freely by his grace through faith alone and is now little by little glorifying you until the day of his coming when all of this will be consummated with a body like Christ's glorious resurrection body. There is this building cadence of God's passionate pursuit of you that begins in Romans 8.1 with an assurance of no condemnation and continues through all of Romans 8 outlining promise after promise of the God-wrought, blood-bought realities of what God is doing in creation. Do you see that God's pursuit of you is unstoppable? At each point in the preceding verses grows this glorious chorus of God being for you. But Paul cannot stop this growing cadence here. He needs to anchor everything that's been said in something that is truly unmovable and a truth unshakable. And he does that in verse 32. You see, the hardest thing that God could have ever done was sending his son to this earth to die for sinners like you and I. And if the hardest thing that God could ever do is sending his son to secure for us so great a salvation, and he's already done that, then indeed, what can ever stand against us? If God has overcome his cherishing, admiring, treasuring, white-hot, affectionate bond with his son and delivered him over to be lied about and betrayed and abandoned and mocked and flogged and beaten and spit on and nailed to a cross and pierced with a sword like an animal and butchered before us. If God has done that, then what will he not do today? So here in verse 32, we do indeed discover one of the most precious truths in all of the scriptures. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We need to understand what is really going on here. What's really happening in the advent. 
You see, in John's gospel, we see that Jesus, in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, what really happened in the Advent was in a manger, helpless and fragile, a tiny baby broke through the fog of darkness that hovered over the earth, and light broke in that day. God became man. He gave up his son in a manger so that he could secure for you and I everything that he had promised to us in his word. God's pursuit of you and I is relentless. Do you see that in the text? Do you see the certainty and security that is growing in Paul's cadence in Romans 8? It's very climaxes here in 832. If God would hand over his own son, then whatever goal he is pursuing could never be stopped. If the obstacle of giving up and slaying his own son has been overcome in the pursuit of his own glory, then every single obstacle is indeed overcome in Jesus. From here, Paul outlines how God has secured these promises for us. He speaks of this reality positively and negatively, both, and for an important purpose. First, he says he did not spare him, but delivered him over. In the words, he did not spare him, we hear the immensity of the obstacle that was God sending his own son to secure for us salvation. Do you understand the reality that God did not delight in handing over his own son? Would you? Would you hand over your only son for someone who hates you? This was indeed an infinitely atrocious thing. For the Son of God to be scourged, beaten, and murdered by the very men he came to save. In those hours, sin reached its worst. In the hours when your sin and mine was taken on by Jesus and all of the wrath of God for our sin was instead poured out on the unblemished and righteous Lamb. So dark was that moment that God could not even witness the wrath that he poured out on his own beloved son. And this moment in history singularly exposed our sin for what it really is. An attack on God. All sin, yours and mine, is an attack against God. A rejection of his beauty and goodness, of his wisdom and truth and infinite love. Our sin is direct rebellion against God. Yet, verse 32, God did not spare his son this treatment. No, instead we see in the second half of 32, he delivered him over. Don't miss the immensity of this. The beauty and the significance is all is 
It's unparalleled in all of time what happens in this moment. Divine love for man and divine hatred for sin gather together at this intersection in history. Absolute divine sovereignty and the everlasting weight of human accountability and moral action gather at this singular point. When God delivered his own son over to death for you and for me. And we cannot miss the implication of this truth at this intersection. The reality that God has shattered every barrier that separates sinful man from himself and securing for us in the death of his son a marvelous and unshakable salvation. If you go a little further in the New Testament, you come to perhaps one of the most precious prayers in all of the New Testament in Ephesians 3. Paul prays there, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, don't miss this, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So what is the goal of what Paul's doing in Romans 8 and again in Ephesians 3? How's it all coming together? The goal is that we would be able to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses all knowledge. Paul's desire is for us to comprehend how high and deep and wide and long the love of Christ is. In fact, he admits that it is beyond human comprehension. And this is a truth that we must apprehend today. We will never get to the top or the bottom or the end of God's love in any direction. There will always be more of it to discover and enjoy. You can never discover the height and the depth and the length and the width of God's love for you fully. There will always be more of it to discover and enjoy. So if this great love has been secured for us in the advent and the breaking in of God's own son into the darkness of the world, then what does that mean for us today? As we began, I outlined two implications of this truth. First, that our salvation is secure. Indeed, all of the promises of God are secure for us in the coming of Jesus. And second, we find in Christ's work strength and satisfaction to endure even the worst suffering. As we look at this first implication in verses 33 and 34, it's important to realize that the truth that's going on there. And the reality of what's happened in verse 32 are so tightly intermingled that you cannot separate them. So as we walk through verses 33 and 34, you're going to hear me talk a lot about stuff we've already talked about. 
I promise I'm not just wasting our time this morning, but I think you might be like me and really prone to forget the weightiness of what God has accomplished for us in Jesus. So we can't leave verse 32 behind as we go into verses 33 and 34. So let's get started. The security of our salvation means that God, in not sparing his own son, grants us the final guarantee that he loves us enough to supply every single need that we have. Now, the words that Paul uses of God and of are the very words that God used of Abraham when Abraham proved his utter loyalty to God by being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac at God's command. In Genesis 22, God said to Abraham, you did not spare your only son for my sake. Sound familiar? It is almost as though Paul reminds us in verse 32 to think of the greatest human example in all of history of a man's loyalty to God and then says, my loyalty to you, my love and affection for you is greater than that. It's greater than you can comprehend. It is, in fact, eternally unshakable. To those who love God and trust Christ and are called according to his purpose, we see in Romans 8 a treasure trove of promises that are ours, secured in Jesus. In verse 28, everything works together for our good. In 29 through 30, our final glorification is secure in Jesus. In 31, God is for you, so no one can successfully be against you. And now we move into 33 and 34. 33 says that since God is the one who justifies, no one can make a charge stick against you in the courtroom of heaven. Verse 34 says that Christ died and was raised and is at the right hand of God and intercedes for you even now so no one ever can condemn you. Verse 32 links all of this together. In fact, that truth holds together almost everything that we see happening in the scriptures. So look at verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Again, Paul asks a question here without giving us the answer to draw us into the point that he's trying to make. Who is the one that condemns? No one. No one is the answer. From here, Paul gives reason after reason why no condemnation can stand against Christians ever. In verse 33, the answer was, it's because God justifies us. This time the answer is because Christ Jesus died, was raised, is at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for you even now. There is no more condemnation. Christ's triumph in 34 is the foundation of God's justification in verse 33. The reason the infinitely just and holy God can justify the ungodly by faith alone is because of what Christ has accomplished in verse 34. Paul's already said this in 32. God didn't spare his own son. Now in verse 34, he spells out the specifics. He looks at the son of God living perfectly, dying perfectly, being raised perfectly so that the father could justify the ungodly by faith. 
and remove every last drop of condemnation. Just like in verse 1, Paul is saying again here, there's no condemnation. Only here he takes it a step further. Not only is there no condemnation, there's no condemners. John Stott sees the universal impact of this and says after verse 34, we can therefore confidently challenge the entire universe with all of its inhabitants, human and demonic. And we can ask, who is it that condemns? There will never be any answer. When Satan stands to accuse you of your sin, when his demons work to pile and to heap on condemnation and guilt, Christ stands secure saying to you right now in this moment, no condemnation. None at all. No obstacle remains that separates you from the love of Jesus. Listen, you who are oppressed by the chains of your sin and your shame, God calls you today to throw it off because he has secured for you in his son a salvation that is so marvelous and beautiful and powerful and unstoppable that it will break and destroy any grip and allure that sin has on your heart today. No obstacle remains for you in coming to Jesus. Not only did God send his son to earth in the advent, but the work of the son was perfect. It was total and complete in securing for us every single promise of God. Christ lived perfectly. He died perfectly, was raised perfectly to secure for every person who has faith a perfect salvation. Do you understand that in every place where you have failed, Christ succeeded? There is no failure too great that Christ has not overcome. Do you understand that his death for you was complete in that he took on every last bit of your sin and gulped down every last drop of God's wrath that should have rightly been dumped on you? Do you realize that we can be completely dependent on the person and the work of Jesus because he is no longer dead, but was raised perfectly to offer a salvation that is not impotent, but rather offers a salvation that is throned in power. Our salvation rests secure in a Savior who sits at the right hand of the Father, and even now he is interceding on your behalf pleading on your half before the Father, even when you are too weak and frail and beat up by your sin and guilt and the suffering of this life, he pleads on your behalf nonetheless. And he pleads his salvation for you. 
John Murray said that nothing serves to verify the intimacy and constancy of the Redeemer's preoccupation with the security of his people. Nothing assures us of his unchanging love more than the tenderness which his heavenly priesthood bespeaks, and particularly as it comes to expression as in his intercession for us. It's at this point we might say, why do I need an intercessor? The death and resurrection of Jesus provide the full ground of my forgiveness and my righteousness. Why do I need that? You're right. There is nothing that Jesus is doing right now that adds to the ground and purchase of our forgiveness and righteousness in heaven. In Hebrews 7, we see that Christ is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. But what I need us to see in Hebrews 7 and throughout all the scriptures is that Jesus stands perfectly and infinitely representing that finished work for us in heaven. He stands as a testament to it. When we fail, he stands there testifying to his work. When we fall down on our faces, he stands secure, speaking to the Father our salvation on our behalf. When we are frail in the midst of suffering, he strongly preaches and speaks the great salvation that he has secured for us in the cross. He stands as a lamb slain and triumphant, providing a living evidence and witness for the ground of the salvation that is already ours in him. So what now? If sin can't condemn us because we are justified and Christ's holiness will not condemn us, since God, who should be our judge, is actually our advocate and pleads our case before the Father, what now? Can anything else separate us from God's love? Do we have any other assurance that's necessary that we won't be cut off from his love? Any final promise that this precious salvation will not be ripped from us? Paul says there's one thing we haven't talked about yet. One last question left unanswered. May not the blows of adverse circumstances achieve what even sin was powerless to effect. To many here today, this is perhaps the most pressing question. Can the reality of adversity and suffering in the world keep me far from the love of God? We may understand the immensity of God's love, the unfathomable depths to which he went to secure salvation for his people, but what remains nagging at us? Speaking doubt into our salvation is the suffering and adverse circumstances that we face. The suffering at work in the world and particularly in our lives. Many of you here today feel the pain and the persecution of suffering in this life, pressing in and choking out the beauty of the God-wrought, blood-bought promises of God. 
Paul does not disappoint here. He answers just as forcefully as he has throughout the entire chapter. He asks in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And knowing the immense suffering of the early church, he adds, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. And he answers again, no, there is nothing that can separate you from the immense, white hot, burning love that God has for you. All of the things which threaten our well-being, sickness, tribulation, persecution, famine, danger, all are incapable of interfering with God's sovereign plan. Paul turns next to an Old Testament passage in Psalm 44 to contrast the suffering of the Old Testament with what we see going on here in the New Testament. In Psalm 44, we find the words, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. That sounds pretty hopeless. Sounds pretty awful. Getting killed all the day long is kind of senseless. It's it's hard to figure out why that would ever happen. And that's exactly what we see going on in the Old Testament. In these former times, these words were a cry of perplexity, an expression of mystery of the seemingly pointless suffering that God's people were facing. However, in this day, in Romans 8, This suffering is a prelude to a kind of triumph. The gospel is at work transforming the meaning of suffering. This is the transformation wrought in our understanding of the difficulties of this life that best us. Does the gospel deliver us from suffering? No. The gospel does not deliver us from misfortunes but rather it enables us to find in the midst of seemingly insurmountable suffering a blessing and not a curse. Here Paul goes on to outline that in the face of suffering, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. I don't know if you've ever been in the midst of really intense suffering and you were just thankful when it ended. And that felt like, an accomplishment in and of itself, you just endured. There is a sense of gratitude and reassurance that's gained in just making it to the other side. But Paul doesn't claim here that we are conquerors over our suffering. He says that we're more than conquerors. We not only defeat the power of evils in Christ, but we snatch a blessing from them in the midst of their onslaught. Here, sorrow becomes the expositor of the mysteries which joy leaves unexplained. You see, defeats in our life teach us humilities when success would have left us insensitive and proud and far from the Father. The tragedies which threaten to blight our joy become the source of our deepest understanding and communion with God and are producing in us, in you this morning, a weight of glory. These sufferings are not overcome and rendered harmless. They hurt, they're real, they're difficult. But by the alchemy of the Spirit, they are changed and transformed into a peculiar kind of positive good that is at work in our lives even now. So now all of your suffering is totally meaningful. It is full of purpose. 
Here, Piper states that every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing in you a peculiar glory that you will gain because of it. It doesn't matter if it's cancer or criticism, slander or sickness, it isn't meaningless. Your suffering is doing something in you. It is bringing about glory. Look to the text. Paul here is sure of this reality that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What can rip you from God? Nothing. Who stands to condemn you? No one. Is there any force at work in the world, in this world presently or the next, that can thwart the steadfast promises of the Lord? And Romans 8 screams this morning, no, not one. Preparing this sermon this week, I was reminded of the story of a man named Horatio Spafford. He was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago. He had a lovely family, a wife and five children, son and four daughters. He had a very successful law firm. He was the envy of many throughout the city of Chicago, and he was also a follower of Jesus Christ. From the outside in, it seemed like the Spaffords had everything going for them, and they probably did, until tragedy struck in 1871. Earlier on in that year, their son died of pneumonia. I can't imagine what it would be like to lose a child. But that wasn't the end of tragedy for them in 1871, because later that fall, the great Chicago fire nearly ruined them. Burnt his firm to the ground. It took their home from them. This is seemingly the largest trial that anyone could ever face. It probably was until just two years later in 1873. Spafford's wife and four daughters get on a ship to go sail to England. And about four days into their crossing of the Atlantic, their ship collides with a much larger iron-hulled Scottish ship. And in this moment, with grave danger all around, Anna hurriedly brings her four children to the deck, praying to God to save them. In less than 15 minutes, the entire ship slips beneath the dark waters of the Atlantic, carrying with it 226 of the passengers, including the four Spafford children. A sailor rowing by in a small boat over the spot where the ship went down spots a woman floating on a piece of the wreckage. It was Anna, Horatio's wife, still alive. He pulls her into the boat and another large vessel picks them up and she gets to England. And days later, Horatio Spafford hears of the tragedy and receives a telegram from his wife. 
saved alone. Mr. Spafford books passage on the next available ship and leaves to join his grieving wife in England. After a couple days of travel, the captain calls Mr. Spafford to his cabin and tells him that they are over in this moment, the very spot where his children went down. It is here where Mr. Spafford penned the words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. And here you can almost hear wave after wave of grief assaulting Horatio, a wave of grief for the loss of his son two years ago, a wave of grief for the loss of his business in Chicago, another wave after wave for each of his daughters who sank and died in the bottom of the Atlantic, wave after wave for grief and sorrow. Do you feel that? The weight of wave after wave of sorrow and grief assaulting your joy this morning, robbing you of peace and satisfaction in this life. Don't stop listening to the song. Horatio goes on to write, Whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to say it is well with my soul. What do you mean it's well with your soul? How can it be well? You lost your son. You lost your business. You lost your four daughters. How are you okay? Don't you understand, God, that I have lost that I've had things ripped from me, that you say that you're sovereign and you're good, and yet pain just keeps creeping into my life and I can't escape it. How is it well with my soul? He goes on to write, though trials should come, and they do, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded his helpless estate and has shed his own blood for his soul. Knew that God loved him. Didn't deny that everything in his life wasn't just horrible. He didn't sweep the atrocities, atrocities of his life up under the rug and just try to get by. No, he fully embraced the horror of what had happened to him and saw that in Jesus, he had something better. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. You suffering this morning? There's only one song you can sing. You're struggling with the weight of what is bearing down on you in your life. There's only one gospel to sing. 
Even in the midst of the greatest suffering, there is secure for the follower of Jesus salvation and the promises of God and strength and satisfaction in the face of insurmountable suffering. So is it well with your soul? Maybe it's not. Maybe you're here this morning and you're just a wreck. And you were just faced with wave after wave of the cold reality of suffering in this world. God knows. It's not meaningless. God's not surprised by it. He's at work in it. He is at work this morning, right now, to show you the lengths to which he is willing to go to secure you, to secure for you all of the promises that he's made you. That he's not going to back down from them when things get hard. That when life gets messy, that when your sin starts to pile up, he's not scared of that. He presses into it. He sent his son into it. That's what the Advent's all about. That's why we're here this morning. So I want to pray that God would just do this work in our hearts. And as we worship and kind of close out our time together today, I pray that if our hearts are entangled in the mess of the sin of this world, that we would look to Christ who is pleading with the Father on your behalf the salvation that He has already secured for you. If you are overwhelmed by the suffering that you are facing presently, Know that just because it's difficult, God's promises to you are still true. Let's pray. God, truly, I can think of no more precious text that you've given us than Romans 8. That there is no condemnation for us, though we deserve it. That there is no one left standing to condemn us because you have stood and pleaded our case and died for our sins. God, it is only now that we can begin to understand how it can be well with our soul. So God, I plead that during this time of worship that we would indeed meet with you. That your promises would bear in on our hearts and God, shatter sin. God, for the one who is low and beat down, by the condemnation that they have heaped on themselves and that the devil has heaped on them, God, that you would raise them up and set them free from that today. 
God, for the sufferer, I pray that you would meet them and grant them grace and a very real understanding of your presence and a very real assurance that your promises still hold true. So God, meet with us now, we pray. Amen.